my sermon by making some reference uh, to the decision-making process that our, our church is currently in. As many of you probably know, we're in this discernment process with First Baptist Church in Aliquippa about the potential merging of our two congregations. And I stressed last week, I want to stress it again this week, that we want your participation in this discernment process because one of the ways that we need to hear the voice of the Lord together is to hear him in each other. And so we are hoping that this season, particularly between now and January, is a time for you to ask questions, to get information, to process concerns with us. We want all of that to take place, and we're inviting that. And honestly, it's been such a blessing so far. Um, those of you who have engaged the process, either in a congregational meeting or you've approached the leader of the church, however you've chosen to do it, we just appreciate your involvement. Um, speaking of, I got a great question last week that I want to address this week, and I was so glad somebody asked it. Last week, I mentioned that it's important that if you consider Crestmont to be your home church and you want to actively participate um, in our congregational meetings in terms of voting, our bylaws require that you be a member of the church. And we did schedule a new membership class. I just don't remember the date. Is it, it's in the bulletin on the front. What is it, Elaine? November 6th. Can we give Elaine a hand for all she does in our church? <laughs> she loves this when I put all the attention in the room on her. Um, yeah, November 6th is the next one. So uh, membership at Crestmont is just a way for you to identify this as the local congregation that uh, you do discipleship and ministry and also allows us to release you into ministry and leadership if that's you know, where God calls you, but it also lets you fully participate uh, in the upcoming process. Now, the question I got was, and it's a great question, do you have to be a member to attend our congregational meetings or to say something at those congregational meetings? And the answer is, no, you do not, all right? Our congregational meetings are open to anybody, all right? And you can even participate in the discussion it is only when we reach some actual decisions through voting that our bylaw requires only members to participate. Does that make sense to everybody? Um, we just want to be very clear about what your choices and options are because I do not want to reach these critical moments where we're making decisions and have people saying, well, I didn't know, you know this or I wasn't able to participate in this way. We just want to be as helpful as we can to all of you, all right? And so thank you so much for journeying with us in this. Well, I'm going to share with you a story to begin uh, this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8, so you can turn there while I begin this story. Um, years ago, a couple started attending our church, and as we got to know them, uh, we realized that they were living together at the time they were engaged. They had been living together while they were dating, and now they were living together while they were engaged. And they were sexually intimate with one another, and that was something they were pretty open with us about from the beginning uh, when they started attending our church. But there was real desire to grow in the Lord, and the guy in the relationship would often end up on my front porch, and we would have conversations about Jesus. And really, the conversation never turned to the sexual issues, at least not initially, 
what we would really talk about was Jesus and his kingdom and his rulership. Now, as you may know, our culture a long time ago moved past any kind of norms, you know, when it comes to sexuality. And the fact that he and his fiance were living together, sexually involved as an engaged couple, would seem like no big deal, you know, to our culture. But of course, according to the teachings of Scripture, it is a deal. And this isn't, you know, what I'm preaching on this morning. I'm not going to have time to get into all of this. But for a lot of really good reasons, God has designed our sexuality to be expressed in a marriage relationship uh, because of the way it reflects his covenant to us. I'm not going to have time to get into that, but there are reasons why God has put uh, boundaries around sex. And this couple had stepped past those boundaries. Well, one day, I'm sitting on my front porch. He's sitting on my front porch, and something is happening in him. What's happening is, is he's falling in love with Jesus more. And he ends up saying to me, all on his own, I would have brought it up in time if, if I needed to, but I didn't have to because of the way the Holy Spirit was working in him. He just said to me, he said, you know, the way I'm living with my fiance isn't right. And he was like, and I know I have to correct it. Now at this point, they were getting married in just a few months. You can almost hear the logic of the world saying, look, number one, this isn't wrong. You know, that's what the world would say. Number two, <clears throat> you know, you're almost getting married anyway, so who cares? But there was something deeper that was stirring in him, and he just decided that he wanted to do this the right way. See, what was happening was the kingdom of God, God's rulership, was coming in on this guy. And he was wanting, hear me, wanting to bring his life into alignment with the rulership of the king. And so, all on his own, I didn't have to convince him, beg him, I didn't have to hold a gun to his head. Um, and there is a place for confrontation, I'm just saying I didn't have to do it in this instance. Because he just so wanted to make this right, that he took some radical steps at great financial expense to himself, because their finances had become entangled a long time ago. And this was kind of a mess for him to find other living arrangements, but he felt like he needed to do it in a way that protected her since he felt like he was the one that had pressured her into this living arrangement. And so all on his own, he took these radical steps of discipleship. Now I'm telling you this story because I love it when the kingdom of God shows up in power, don't you? You know, when someone gets healed, there is reason for us to shout and celebrate and dance and sing. I love seeing Jesus kick a demon's butt in deliverance. I love it. Who wouldn't love that, you know? I love seeing God's supernatural power at work, but I have to say, I'm not sure that any of that ever equals up to seeing the kingdom of God come in on a person's heart in such a way that not begrudgingly, not because someone is forcing them, not because there's a gun to their head, but because they're falling in love with Jesus. They want to bring their life into alignment with the wishes of the king. It's a miracle, isn't it? It's a miracle. I remember sitting there thinking, I don't know that this story will ever get the kind of, you know, wow response that other things get, but this is one of the clearest evidences of the kingdom I've ever seen, you know, that this person just wants to make the change. What we're talking about today is repentance, and kingdom motion is what I'm calling it today. My main point this morning is that the kingdom always requires movement. 
and kingdom motion is called repentance. And to explore this, we're going to look at Luke 8, 16 to 18. If you'd stand to your feet, and I'll read this. It says, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. You can take your seat. This probably goes without saying, but these few verses I just read aren't exactly the most popular or the most familiar sayings of Jesus. And one of the reasons is, is that they're kind of hard to understand. I've never had this before in studying for a passage, but it happened this week. One of the commentaries on my shelf as I was exploring what some other people say about this passage, I opened up the commentary to these verses and there was just a short little paragraph and it said, we don't know what these verses mean and we're not sure why they're here. That's all it said. <laughs> and so <coughs> they just didn't even have the time or the energy to try to figure this out. The rest of my commentaries had some thoughts, but I've never seen a commentary be that honest. That ought to give you a lot of hope this morning that I know what I'm talking about, right? Um, nonetheless, we're going to try to explore this together, but basically what's happening in these three short verses is Jesus uh, speaks a, a, a parable. It's almost a proverb. Um, you know, he gives us a word picture, and then he explains that word picture with two more proverbs. And so that's why this is going to require some thinking for us today, and I'm going to do my best to help you track what's happening um, in this portion of Jesus' teaching. Um, Jim mentioned to us a few weeks ago that Jesus often did this. Rather than teaching in sound bites that could be easy, easily popularized or, for that matter, reinterpreted, he often taught in these word pictures, parables and proverbs, and the purpose wasn't to conceal the truth from everyone. The purpose was to provoke hunger in people's hearts. People who had, didn't have the time of day for Jesus in the first place wouldn't have the time or energy to press in deeper. <laughs> They'd write a commentary and just say, we don't understand, right? <laughs> but people who were hungry, you know, people who wanted to press in, these, this way of teaching would actually draw them in closer, cause them to think so that they could understand in a deeper way. Um, today's passage in both Matthew and Luke is tied to Jesus' teaching of the four soils, which we covered two weeks ago. And if you remember, when Jim taught, us, taught on that passage, he told us that that passage, you know, the seed lands on these different soils, is really about kingdom response. It's about how we respond to the kingdom of God. And I'm going to suggest to you today that that's what these teachings are about as well. Jesus is telling us something about how we respond, what our response should look like. Um, now, Jesus had said this pretty much at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, you might remember that when Jesus appeared on the scene in the Gospel of Mark and his ministry begins, that right away he begins making an announcement that the kingdom of God is here and that it demands a response. So he says in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. As we've been saying probably nearly every Sunday in this series, in Jesus an event is happening. The kingdom of God is invading the earth 
And that kingdom is invading. God's gracious rule is invading in the person of Jesus. Even now, we live in an age in which the kingdom of God has manifested and is manifesting in greater measure on the earth. But Jesus has manifested this kingdom, the dynamic activity of his rule, without ending the kingdom of darkness. That time is coming. So we're waiting for a time when we will experience the kingdom in its fullness. Now, we have repeated this time and time again in the series, but it's so important that we do. Because if you don't read the passages of Scripture in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John without this kingdom teaching as the backdrop, you will not fully understand the passages. And this is true for Jesus' teaching. It's true for his healing, his miracles, uh, his deliverances. All of this is happening with the backdrop of this big-time event that's taking place. The kingdom of God, the gracious rule of God is breaking in on human history. Well, when Jesus appears, he announces this great event. The kingdom is at hand. That's a big announcement. But he also says that the kingdom is something that we have to respond to. People are going to respond one way or the other. If you have a smartphone like I do and you have some news apps, you know that you just get inundated with information. You know, different news stories. My phone, it seems like all the time, you know, there's all these news stories popping up. The, the vast majority of them, I read some news on my phone, but the vast majority of those stories, those announcements of events that are happening, I don't pay attention to at all, right? I might notice them for a second, but I don't open up the story to read it. I don't explore further. Well, Jesus is saying that's not what this event is like. This is a headline you can't ignore. As a matter of fact, this is a headline that's very personal. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it will call for a response from everyone who encounters this kingdom in one direction or another. Now, Jesus goes beyond just saying that this kingdom will require a response, and he tells us in Mark 1 the kind of response that is appropriate to the kingdom coming because there really is only one kind of response that's appropriate, and Jesus calls it repent. He calls it repentance. Listen, the kingdom of God is at hand therefore repent. Now that word means literally to turn. You're in one direction and you turn in another, but it is far more, as we're going to see, than just feeling sorry over your sin. Jesus is talking about a change in the way you live. We at one time lived in the kingdom of darkness and we lived according to that kingdom's principles. Repentance brings about a change where now we don't only turn, but we walk in this new way of life with Jesus, with a new king and new principles in the kingdom that is invading. So this kingdom provokes this kind of response. And really, the response isn't uh, only to like the principles of the kingdom, it's really to the person of the kingdom, that kingdom's king, who is Jesus. The Apostle John likes to talk about this oftentimes in very stark terms. Uh, one place we can see this is in 1 John 5.12. He says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have, son, uh, does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus, I mean, John is saying that the great dividing line in history is Jesus. How we respond to him is where everything hinges, where everything changes. It's our response to him. Now, that's notable because we're saying that everything doesn't hinge, I was saying this last week, on us meeting some kind of man-made standard, right? It doesn't hinge on if we have a particular sin or not. Now, listen, how we respond to Jesus, if we truly submit to his kingship, 
Scripture is clear that there will be behaviors that change in us as a result of that. But those behaviors are not the great dividing line. The great dividing line is Jesus. Listen, when I'm sharing the gospel with people all the time, uh, people want to take the conversation to a certain behavior. I've stood in front of drug dealers, and they've told me there's no way that God can forgive me because of what, I, what I'm doing. I've had people confess sexual sin to me, say there's no way that God could ever accept me because this is what I'm doing. Well, those things are almost distractions to the conversation. They're important, but it's not the main thing. The main thing is, how have you responded to Jesus in your heart? Have you responded to the king with repentance, turning to him and submitting your life to his kingship and rule, then all of those other things will change and flow out of that, but they don't come first, they come second. The dividing line is Jesus. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's already experiencing this because some people are accepting him and other people are rejecting him. It's why he tells the story of the four soils and it's why this passage, why he goes into this teaching here. So we're going to try to understand these three statements in verse 16, 17, and 18. First of all, verse 16. Jesus says, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. Now, as you know, light is a big theme in Scripture, and it can refer to different things. Sometimes it refers to God. Sometimes it refers to God's truth. Sometimes it refers to us. In places in the New Testament, it says that we are the light. But I agree with what most people would say about this passage, that in this passage, especially in light of the parable of the four soils before it and in the two statements that come after it, that what Jesus is talking about when he talks about this light being set on a stand for everyone to see is really himself and the way of life in the kingdom that is being demonstrated to people. Listen, if you want to know what God is like, then look at Jesus. You know, we've said this from the beginning of this series. If you really want to know what he's like, Jesus is the clearest picture that we have of what God is like, God in the flesh. Think about this, in, you know, in the Old Testament. I've said this before, but think about a great event in the Old Testament where God revealed himself to his people. Mount Sinai, for instance, right? God appears on top of that mountain in great glory. There's thunder and smoke uh, to give his people the law. Well, that's a powerful revelation of God, isn't it? And God's people did learn something about who God was in that moment. And yet, don't you think that when all of that was done on Mount Sinai, the people, to some extent, were left scratching their heads thinking, what was that? You know, I have all kinds of questions about that. There's a lot of mystery that surrounds that. But in Jesus, we experience a higher degree of God revealing himself because he is God in human flesh. Unlike Mount Sinai, Jesus is someone that you can touch. His disciples talk to him, laugh with him, eat dinner with him. If you really want to know what the character, compassion, ways, thoughts of God are like, then Jesus is who you look to. And I think that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Look, when you light a lamp, you don't put it under a bowl, you don't hide it under a bed, you put it on a stand for people to see. And I think what Jesus is saying, this is what God has done in me. He has put himself on display for people to see. He has made himself accessible in the life and the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. But Jesus says something else in verse 16. He says that the light goes on the stand, but then people come in 
to see the light. There's language of motion here. Some translations say that you enter to see the light. Think about it. In Jesus' day especially, lamps weren't really used outside. They were used inside. So the picture Jesus is creating here is a light on a stand in a house. And he is saying, if you want to see the light, come inside. Come enter this experience of the light. It's an invitation to come and be part of what God is doing in his kingdom. I think in this passage, this language of entering, this language of moving from outside to inside is Jesus' language of repentance that he uses in other places. I think it's the main stress of this passage. And just to be clear, to enter in to the light of God for Jesus is never about coming and just hearing him talk or coming and hearing a pastor talk or something like that. It's not just about gaining information. The invitation of Jesus to his disciples is always that they might come into a way of life with him that is governed and ruled by God in the kingdom to learn how to live that kind of life with Jesus in the kingdom of God. So now, Jesus goes on to develop this theme in verse 16 in the next two sayings. In verse 17, Jesus describes what this light is like and what it will reveal. And in verse 18, Jesus describes uh, this kingdom motion of repentance. I'm going to talk about both uh, with you just real quick here. First of all, verse 17. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. If you were here last week, then you know that the passage that we looked at made a very strong reference to the future judgment of God. You know, we aren't supposed to be the ones that judge in an ultimate sense, but God does claim that right. In the age that we live in now, that is not what God is doing. He is being merciful so that as many as possible might come to repentance. But a time is coming when he will judge right from wrong and sort out wickedness from righteousness. And I think verse 17 here is another way that Jesus describes this judgment. You know, we live in an age now, Jesus said in verse 16, where you can come in and see the light. The invitation is open. But in verse 17, Jesus describes a time when the light will shine on everyone, whether they want it to or not. And everything that is hidden will come to light. Everything that's hidden will be exposed. Now, let me ask you, does that scare you? And if so, why? You know, if it does, I want to suggest to you today that it's only because you still think you have something to hide. And if you think you have something to hide, it's because you really still don't know who God is or what his love for you is like. You still don't know what this kingdom is like and what this kingdom's king is like. We just read it in John that whoever has the son has life. This kingdom is a kingdom of life. You know, in the Old Testament, there was a period where the people of God became very rebellious, engaged in all kinds of sin, and God raised up prophets to speak truth to them. One of those prophets was a man named Hosea. And he often envisioned God's people as an adulterous wife. And this is what he says in Hosea 2. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife. When he says she, he's talking about the people of God. And I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. Now, doesn't that seem harsh? God is saying he's going to expose his people. Why? To bring them to shame? 
I think God has something more in mind here through the prophet Isaiah. He's going to expose what his people are hiding from him so that he might heal it. See, our tendency is to believe the same lie that's recorded in the book of Genesis that Adam and Eve believed, that we must hide from God in shame. We must hide our nakedness because of our sinfulness. But I think there's a different story. You know, I realized eventually that confession... Confessing our sins to one another is a voluntary form of exposure. Someday, the light's going to shine on everything and bring it all out. But confession, in the context of safe community, is something that God has given us now to practice that voluntarily brings what is hidden into the light. And our willingness to do that says everything about who we believe God to be. You know, the Protestant reformers of whom our church in some sense, you know, has gained its tradition from uh, critiqued the church in the Middle Ages because they believed that confession had become corrupt, particularly as it related to money. That you had to go to a priest and confess and pay money to experience forgiveness, all those kinds of things. As I look back at those critiques the Protestant reformers gave 500, 600 years ago, I have to say I agree with most of them. But many people have noted since that churches like ours and the tradition we're in have lost something that was valuable and it was the regular disciplined confession of our sins to one another. Because something beautiful happens when we voluntarily come into the light. Everything's going to be exposed, but if we know God loves us, why wait until then? Why not bring everything into the light now? And see, if you think you have something to hide, it's just because the enemy is telling you that God will never love you, never accept you if you bring it into the light, but he knows you anyway. You don't have to hide from him. The invitation is open. Come into the room where the light is shining and let it shine on you in fullness. You have nothing to hide because this is an amazing thing. Listen, you know, the pictures we have of Jesus hanging on the cross, you know, his, his private parts are often covered by a cloth. We do that to make the picture appropriate and acceptable to us in church. But you know that's not how it was, right? He hung naked there for you. See, Jesus was exposed in shame so that someday you could stand with everything exposed in the light and in the forgiveness and in the love of God. That's what he's done for you. He carried the shame so that you didn't have to carry it. And so we can step into the light, and we don't have to wait for that day to come. And listen, when you step into the light of Jesus' love, I can't promise you that you won't experience consequences. You know, sometimes we hide things because we're afraid of the way it will affect other people. You know, but even that is a lie. You have to trust God with that, you know? Um, sometimes we hide things because we're trying to control our environments. But listen, I can't tell you there won't be consequences, but I can tell you you will never have a deeper experience of the love of God than when you voluntarily step into his love. When you come into the light. Because God has set this lamp on a table. Why hide from it? Step into the light of who he is. Then we go on to verse 18. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. And I think here, Jesus is literally driving home this point about kingdom response, about what it looks like to respond to the kingdom of God. He said this at the beginning, the light is shining, you can come see it, or you can stay outside. 
But when the kingdom comes, nobody is staying still. You're either listening and responding and moving with Jesus, or you're rejecting him and you're running away and moving away from him. Um, I read the most discouraging news article the other day. It was one I paid attention to. The title was, How Quickly We Lose the Benefits of Exercise. And it was saying that there was this new study that was done. Of course, you know, there's all kinds of benefits to exercise. That's, you know, what we know. But the study showed that it only takes 10 days before you start losing those benefits. That is the most discouraging thing in the world. You know, that's like one vacation, you know, one Christmas holiday, you know, and you start losing the benefits. Um, What the article was saying is when it comes to taking care of our bodies, exercise, there's no standing still, right? We're either headed in one direction or the other. You can exercise for 10 years, but you hit those 10 days and you start losing the benefits. I won't discourage you anymore. Let me give you another example. Um, One reason an aliquip impact we really believe in our summer day camp program is because studies have shown that if kids don't use their minds during the summer, you know, if all they do is veg out in front of video games for the summer, that they actually lose some of the information that they gained from the previous school year, so their teachers have to spend time then catching up. But if a child's mind remains active, right, then they retain those benefits. That's some of what Jesus is saying here. The kingdom has come, and nobody is standing still. You're either moving with Jesus in repentance, or even what you do have will be taken away from you as you run away from him. Now, I want to say a word about repentance, because I think our tendency is to view repentance as something that's stationary. I use that language of turning. Our tendency is to think, okay, I was facing this way in sin and darkness, and then I turned, and now I'm facing Jesus, but we still imagine this with our feet standing still. But that's not the way it is. If the worship team could come forward, that's not the way it is at all. It's not the way Jesus envisions it. When he talks about the kingdom, he's always talking about movement. Look, if you stay still, even what you have, you'll lose. The growth you've had, you'll lose. So, we, our tendency is to you know, reserve repentance for people who really don't know Jesus, you know, for the really bad sinners. But in fact, for Jesus, repentance is a way of life that ought to characterize everyone who has come into his grace, everyone who has come to trust his heart and stand in the light of his love. Repentance is a way of life. So in this way, our baptisms, which are really a kind of picture of this kind of repentance that I'm describing. You know, we go under the water and bury our old way of life and we come up in a new reality. Our baptisms are both a testimony of what has happened and they are prophetic of our future. Because this is what we do again and again and again. We take another step. We repent again. The kingdom encounters us, calls us to response. We trust his character. We can step into the light of his love. So we take another step with him. And before we know it, we are moving and grooving with Jesus. That's bonus. This is what kingdom life looks like, moving in the light of his love. So just two things as I close. First of all, in light of this passage, what should our church look like? Well, listen, our church shouldn't be a place of judgment because that belongs to God. And judgment is not a movement creator. It is a movement stopper, right? Someday, God will bring an end 
to this age. But that's not what he's doing right now. That day will come at a time that only he knows. This is an age of kingdom movement, of motion, of coming in to see the light. And so on one hand, our churches can't be a place of judgment. But on the other hand, our churches must not be, a place, must not be places that encourage passivity. That encourage you to just sit and be fed. Right? Um, we must be places of invitation. Right? Come and see the light. It's burning in the God has set it out. The invitation is open to everybody, but also challenge. Okay, you've seen the light. It calls for a response. And we're going to find loving ways to communicate that to you. Secondly, I ask you this. In light of this passage, what should our lives look like? Jesus lived this life of catalytic motion in love. There was something about the way he loved and lived that required response from other people. And I want to encourage you to live those kinds of catalytic lives, to love so deeply and fearlessly and recklessly that it requires people to encounter the kingdom of God. You won't do that by judging them. You understand that's a motion stopper. You do it by loving them. But in loving them, you call them to response. Now listen, some will respond positively, some won't. I'm learning more and more. There's this quality to kingdom living where you just choose to love and let the chips fall where they will. But there is something about how God has called us to pray and to live that creates motion because this is a characteristic of the kingdom of darkness, that it numbs people. It's a kingdom of death. Think about it. Not much is moving in a cemetery, right? But when the kingdom of God invades, things begin to come to life. They begin to move and to breathe again, and new options begin to manifest themselves where the kingdom of God comes. Listen, let me tell you a story as I close here about a way that this is happening in Aliquippa. And I know there's been some awful, painful things in the news in the last week, so I want to share with you a story of life. Listen, this is something that happened the last five weeks ago, just five weeks ago. Some of you know this. There is a young man who we've been praying for for a long time. Many of you in this church have been praying for him many times. His name has popped up in one of our prayer meetings, and we've interceded for him. He's a young man that we worked with for years and then ended up in the streets doing really dangerous things. Now, there's a lot I could tell you about his story, but one day he said to me a long time ago, he said, I know what I'm doing is crazy. I'm going to die out here. He said, but there is something about this that's starting to feel normal to me because that's what the kingdom of darkness does. It just creates this lethargy that eventually numbs everyone until you're not moving anymore, right? But kingdom people are people of motion. And we begin to pray and we begin to call out to God and we keep loving and we keep moving. We keep walking with Jesus in repentance again and again and again. We turn to the kingdom instead of to the kingdom of darkness, believing that in his wonderful light we experience his love and his grace. And then things start to dislodge. Things start to change. Things start to move. And so this young man five weeks ago, my phone starts blowing up with numbers from Pittsburgh. I don't recognize any of the numbers. It's not my practice to pick up a number, you know, that I don't recognize. And uh, in a church service five weeks ago, my phone rings again, but this time there's a voicemail. It's this young man. And he says, I need you to come to a neighboring town. I'm there. I need to tell you what the last few days have looked like. 
So I drive out, I meet him, I spend like five hours with him on that Sunday, and this is what he tells me. He says, Joel, a few days ago, last Wednesday, my car was stolen, and it was taken from me, and I knew who did it. And he said, and the day after that, my best friend called me and said, said uh, hey, I have your car for you. Will you come down the steps, and I'll give you the keys? So he comes down the steps, but when he opens the front door, there's two guys with guns to his head. He had been set up by his best friend. Now he's telling me the story, and I'm going, wait, 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 Thursday night. Thursday night. He was like, yes, Thursday night. That's why I'm telling you the story. Um, at 10.37 p.m. that Thursday night, I have it on my phone, I, something just popped into my head. Text him now. It felt like the Lord. I don't know how else to describe it. It just felt like the Lord. So I sent him a text. I said, hey, I love you. The sequence of events was that his best friend called him. He came down the steps. As he's coming down the steps, he gets my text. Hey, I love you. Opens the door. There's guns to his head. He says to me, that's some kind of God sign or something, isn't it? That's what he says. Now, listen, I'm not going to have time with you this morning to share with you how he escaped out of that. He lived. It's miraculous that he did. And then he ended up calling me from a bunch of numbers after that. And that's when I met up with him. And now, through a partner ministry of ours, he's out of the state in a house that's keeping him safe, a discipleship house. And listen, there's still need for encounter. You still need to pray for him. But God is doing something in his life. Do you see what I'm saying? Our prayers, your kingdom come. Those kinds of prayers are prayers that create motion. They're prayers that create repentance. Guys, you can't judge people into the kingdom. Do you understand that? You can't judge. You love people. You call down the kingdom and let it dislodge things that are dead and new realities get created. That story I just told you, it is nowhere near over, but things are moving that were not moving before. And that's a sign of kingdom activity. The light, go see the light. It's in there. Go see the light. Move, get moving. Go and see the light. If you'd stand to your feet.